Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have a great sorrow and a continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself, excuse me, were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promise of whom the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternal blessed God. You couldn't have a more clear verse on the deity of Jesus Christ than Romans 9, 6. He is the eternal blessed God forever, over all. Amen. But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. I went ahead and included that even though most of our Bibles break that paragraph there and sometimes even have a new heading. It's all one thought. And Paul is grieving over the lost state of his countrymen. But then in verse 6, he indicates that God's purposes and his choice of election of Israel has not come void. God has still got a plan and is doing something through their temporary hardening and blindness. Let's have a prayer, and then we'll go into our teaching this morning. Father, we thank you for the inspiration of Scripture, that it's God-breathed, it's profitable for teaching, for instruction in righteousness, for correction and reproof, so that we as the people of God might be perfect, that we might be mature, that we might be thoroughly furnished, totally equipped for every good work. So use this passage this morning, use your word in our hearts and our lives to transform us and to conform us into the image of your dear Son. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Um, I'm going to take some time and review last Sunday's sermon. Last Sunday was sort of a background for Romans 9, 10, and 11. Um, I probably take a different view than a lot of Bible expositors on this section of Scripture. And so I want to give a good background to help you understand why I interpret Romans 9 in the way that I take Romans 9, 10, and 11. I see Romans 9, 10, and 11 as a total unit, Paul dealing with the question of Israel's unbelief. And that's the perspective that I approach Romans 9, 10, and 11. I don't approach it from the perspective that Paul is talking about individual election to salvation or individual election to reprobation. Now, there are godly, wonderful Bible teachers who take that perspective, and that has been the more dominant perspective since the time of the Reformation in some mainline denominational teaching. However, there is a always been another vein that has looked at this passage in a slightly different way. And I think William Lane Craig 
I think, in my opinion, expresses it beautifully. He sees this passage as God not, God not narrowing the parameters of salvation, but he actually, Paul is broadening the parameters, that he's including all Gentiles, Jews, under God's provision of redemption. And that's the course that, that I'm going to be introducing and taking as I look at this passage. So when I come to a passage where it says that God hardens whom he will harden, and he shows mercy to whom he shows mercy. I interpret that in the light of the question, why is Israel now hardened and blinded in their temporary state of unbelief? Because you've got to take this whole section together, 9, 10, and 11, because Paul starts out this passage, obviously, with a broken heart, a sorrow, a continual pain that he wants to see his countrymen come to faith, even though they are being broken off from the olive tree. That's his perspective here. And in chapter 10, he says, My heart's desire for God, for Israel, is that they may be saved. So it's an Israel question. It's a Jewish question of why they are blinded. Why are they so hardened? And God can have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. I don't see that as an arbitrary picking of certain people for salvation, but God can have mercy on Gentiles when he wants to have mercy on them, regardless of what you Jews think. That Abraham had a plan, or God, I'm sorry, had a plan through choosing Abraham. And so that's where I'm going to start my review. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, the plan for Israel was to be a blessing to all nations. So that's where we need to start with our understanding of Israel. Then we see them in the book of Exodus there as a light to an empire that was the strongest empire on the face of the earth. And every local region, every geographical region, and that land that they encompassed had their gods, little gods, spiritual dominions that ruled and reigned over those areas, and they were real entities, but they were devils, they were demons, they were demonic spirits. And so God has his people placed in Egypt. Why? Because this is the most mighty empire at the face of the earth at this time, and God hardens Pharaoh's heart, which was already hardened because he thought he was a deity. And he was not going to bow to Yahweh, the Hebrew God. He said, I don't know Yahweh. I don't know the God of the Hebrews. Why should I let your people go? I have my gods. I have my jurisdiction gods. The sun god, the god of the Isle, the Nile, the, the gods of harvest. And so the God of Israel, who wasn't in that land, a different geographic land that God had given him, he brought that God and imported him into Egypt so that God could show all the earth, who the one true God was. That was God's plan for Israel. And God brought judgment, Exodus 12, 12, on all the gods of Egypt. And as a result, a mixed multitude went up out of Egypt and converted to following the one true God because that's God's prerogative to show mercy to those who will humble themselves. And it's God's prerogative to harden those who resist truth. So we have the covenant with Abraham. We have 
the people in Egypt. And then we have the giving of the law, Exodus 19. They were to be a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. They were a special treasure above all the people on the earth. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, 4 through 7 actually, talk about why God gave them these laws. Their laws were to be their wisdom, their knowledge, and their insight among all the other nations. You think about where God strategically put the nation of Israel. He put them between Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates. And he put them between Egypt, two mighty empires. All the traveling, all the trade, you had to go through Israel. And every nation came in contact with the nation of Israel and their God and their laws. And the nations would say, who has a God so nigh unto you as the Jewish people do? And so they were a light to the nations through their laws, through the Exodus, through the covenant with Abraham. And God not only did that, he says, I will show my faithfulness through my people even when they are faithless. God had entered into a covenant with Abraham, and his covenants are irrevocable. His promises are always yes and amen because they are based on grace. And so Israel was undeserving, and God stayed faithful. He brought them under the judgment of the Babylonians. And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar saw the truth of who the one true God was. When the Persians took over, Cyrus, Daniel had such an influence on him. Cyrus knew something that Isaiah had written 150 years before Cyrus was ever born. And and Cyrus says, the God who's over all the universe, has raised me up to release you to go back and rebuild your temple in 538 B.C. We have archaeological proof for that in called the Cyrus Cylinder. That's sort of beside the point, but it's kind of nice when you have archaeological confirmations for God's truth in Scripture. So the 70 years of captivity, God took a remnant of godly Jewish people scattered them all over the empire so that he would have his voice still in the midst of their unfaithfulness. And during the time of Esther, a decree went out to annihilate the Jewish people. God was faithful to his covenant. And so what did God do? I mean, it's an incredible story. Raises up a guy named Mordecai. Mordecai, I'm going to be preaching for two hours because I'm not even getting in my notes this morning. But it's a great story. I'm going to have to just kind of brush by it. Esther turns the whole heart of the king around. And at the end of the story of Esther, people are saying, I want to be a follower of Judaism. I convert to following this God. Nehemiah goes back and rebuilds the walls in 52 days. And the enemies were much cast down in their eyes because they perceived that this thing was done of the Lord. So God had a plan for Israel in the Old Testament. Then you come to the New Testament. What's going on in the New Testament? It's it's almost exactly what you wouldn't expect. It's a paradox. Jesus comes to his own, his own people, and his own people do not receive him. What in the world is that all about? They want to make him a king after he feeds 5,000 people. By force, they want to make him a king. What does Jesus do? He doesn't say, you guys have got it. You're right. I am David's. I'm the ancestor of King David. You've got it right. No. He says, you guys are coming for a king who wants to satisfy your temporal 
ungodly wants, and you are not recognizing your spiritual depravity. So Jesus goes up into the mountain, dismisses the multitude, says, I'll have none of this. And then what he does is even more strange. He says words almost purposely provoking his followers so that they wouldn't follow him. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part. And what does it say? It says, many of his disciples no longer walked with him. This is what Jesus was doing. He was sifting between those who were genuine disciples who were teachable and those who were self-hardened. And then he was teaching in parabolic language to harden those who were already hardened. He says that in exact words in Matthew chapter uh, 13 and in Mark chapter 4. He says, in you is fulfilled the words of Isaiah because your hearts have grown dull. Your ears you have shut, your eyes you have closed. So I'm going to speak to you in parables. And then Jesus took 12 ordinary common men so that he could pour his heart and life into them. And he says, I have chosen you. You have not chosen me. Now, that's not a reference to salvation. That is an election to service. And their election to service was to take then their message to everybody, the Great Commission. So that's what Jesus was doing in the New Testament. And how did he do that? He did it through two things. I talked about the parabolic language. That was one way that Jesus judicially hardened and blinded a rebellious people. And the other way he did it was called the Messianic Secret. Jesus, rather than broadcasting he was the Messiah, he kept it under wraps only for his inner circle. When Jesus performed miracles, he would tell the individual, go tell no one what has happened, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifice that's been required by the law. When demons cried out, we know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. He silenced the demons. And then furthermore, when God sent messengers in the Old Testament, what was God doing? And Jesus tells us what he was doing through the parable of the vineyard. You you wonder what Jesus was doing when he cursed that fig tree? That was a symbolic representation of the nation of Israel. Jesus saw it afar off. It had leaves on it. That indicated that it should have had fruit. And then we've got this bizarre phrase in the Gospel of Mark that says, but it wasn't the time of fruit. It tells me that God looked at the nation of Israel. They should have known and recognized their own Messiah. There is going to be a day when Jesus comes back when all Israel will be saved, Romans eleven twenty five. But that wasn't then, and Israel was under God's curse at that time. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 14. I'm sorry, Mark 19, 42. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you had known the time of your visitation, but now it has passed you. And these things, he says, now are hid from your eyes. So God was judicially blinding and hardening the nation of Israel through the messianic secret, through parabolic language, and sending messengers. In fact, that's what the parable of the, uh, of the vineyard is all about. Servant after servant. And finally the son was sent. And you know what Jesus said at the end of that? He said, I will take the nation from you and I will give it to a nation bringing forth fruit of my kingdom. That's what God is doing. In my understanding, I could be wrong, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And that's why the Jews are saying, God has your plan and your purposes 
For our people, have they failed? No, they failed in no way. So the messianic secret, demonic spirits couldn't talk about who he was. The miracles were silenced. And when Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, what did he say to Peter, James, and John when they were coming down? He says, tell no one what you saw until when? Until Christ is raised from the dead. When Peter confesses and all the other apostles finally recognize that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says this, tell no one until after the resurrection. Because Jesus had a plan, and the Jewish people missed it. His plan was to be lifted up off the earth. And he says, when I am lifted up, then, then I will draw all people to myself. If the rulers of this world, of this age, had known who he was, they would not have crucified the Prince of Life. So this is what God was doing through that time. We see it in Paul's ministry. Paul's ministry often and almost without exception would go to the synagogue first. And we have a, 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 a pattern wherever Paul went, unless there was not a Jewish synagogue there, that's where he went first. And that's what we see in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I am a debtor to all men, for as much as within me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And this is the principle, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. For herein is the righteousness of God revealed. It's from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And the Jewish people thought that they had a special in just because they were the children of Abraham. And if we read the rest of verse 6, it says, Not all Israel was truly Israel. It's only people who are coming by grace through faith. So the Paul went to, into, into the city of Antioch. He preached the gospel. And this is what the text tells us. It says, The God-fearing Gentiles. And some of the Jews believed, and those God-fearing Gentiles, they went home, and they told what was happening in the synagogue, and the next Sabbath day, the entire city shows up to hear the gospel. And what had happened to the Jews who were hardened? They rebelled, and they begin to contradict, they begin to blaspheme the name of God, and Paul says this, you have judged yourselves unworthy of the kingdom of heaven. And he says, therefore, I will go to the Gentiles and they will hear it. And that was his pattern throughout his ministry. So this is where we're at in the book of Romans. So I want to give you the definition of self-hardening. What does it mean to self-harden? Self-harden occurs when a free moral agent has truth and light and then of their own volition rejects that truth and light. Jesus said this in John chapter 12. He says, while I am with you, you have the light. Walk in the light, lest the darkness overtake you. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. And though he did so many miracles in front of them, they still did not believe. So that's why he hardened them. 
They had the truth. They had the life. So self-hardened people, they have the truth. Jesus said this in his parable teaching in Mark chapter 4. Pay attention to what you hear. With what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And what you do have, you will be given abundance. And if you don't use what you do have, even what you have will be taken away from you. That's self-hardened people. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7, it says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So who's doing the hardening here? It's not God. That's what the writer of Hebrews is warning. And he's using the example of the Exodus. They saw God's works. They tested him and tried him in the wilderness for 40 years. So self-hardening is when you see God's truth, you're exposed to knowledge, and you refuse to respond to it. You refuse to acknowledge it. You refuse to get on your knees and say, God, I need you. That's a scary place to be. And every Christian can come to that place, too. When you become callous to sin in your life. Yesterday, I was at a track meet. I told you this. And my dad, he was a skinflint. I mean, he could pinch a penny that Abe Lincoln would scream. Uh, he was so tight. I, I kid you not, I remember going into a, a, a pay restroom, and you had to put a quarter in the this, in this little slot thing. And I looked at my dad, and he says, crawl under. <laughs> so we did. He had keys for everything. I, I'm not kidding you. He had the master key. He coached in high school. And we would go to another school, and another, and my dad would get out his keys. I said, Dad, the, the front door, he says, oh, I, I got one of these, it'll work, I'm sure. And sure enough, we would sneak into the gym. And that's the way, so I'm at this track meet, and I, I'm going to watch one race, and I'm going to go home. I'm going to drive back to Utah, and it's $15, and I'm going to watch a nine-minute race. I don't want to pay that 15 you, That's me, yeah. So my... My daughter-in-law, she's outside. They, well, they give me a, a coach's brace. That's free. So I wiggle that thing off, and I say, here, Jordan, go give this to Tiffany. And I'm standing there. I says, i got to preach tomorrow. <laughs> I, I can't do that. I, I'm going to pray for my son to run a good race. My prayers are going to be bouncing off the clouds. <laughs> I don't even know where I'm going with this illustration. Oh, now I remember... This is my confession. No, it's not confession time. This is what I'm saying. You can kind of get into a habit of doing things and rationalizing them and justifying them. So a believer, we need to be careful. We can do it with the television shows we watch. We can do it with the music we listen to. You hear a little bit of profanity. Oh, but I like this show. He takes the name of the Lord in vain. Oh, but this has got a good plot. They start dro dropping the, the, the bomb word. Oh, oh but, but that's okay. And pretty soon you stop seeing it, you stop hearing it, you stop noticing it. And so that is the application for us from that little story. The context here is self-hardened people. So what is judicial hardening? What is it when God hardens? Is that fair that God hardens people? It absolutely is because God is sovereign. And he knows the heart. And he knows that sometimes the only way he can get a hold of somebody is letting them go down that road of rebellion and sowing the seed and then reaping the fruit. That's exactly what the parable of the prodigal son is about. This rebellious son 
wants what he wants, and he wants it right now, and the Father represents God, and God says, you know what, I'm going to let you have this. And so when you know the truth and you suppress the truth in unrighteousness, God gives you over to your own choices. That's God's actively hardening your rebellion. When you know truth and you exchange truth for a lie, God gives you over. So this is the context, I think, that the chapter of 9, 10, and 11 falls under. Judicial hardening is when God takes an active role to prevent someone who's already rejected truth from understanding more truth. However, this is done for a greater good, for the salvation of the individual. But with Israel, it's done for the salvific purposes of the world. It says in Romans chapter 11 that the Jewish people were broken off. Why? Why did God break them off? Why did God hard? It was so that the Gentiles might be grafted in. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Because he wanted the whole world to see and to put God's grace on display. Romans eleven seven says this, What? Has Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking for? And the elect have obtained it. The elect were an election of grace, not an election of Abraham, not an election of keeping the law. It was an election of grace. They missed it, and it says this, And the rest were hardened. That's what God did. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. God did that. Eyes that they should not see and that they would not hear down to this very day. Now that begs the question, they must have had a free will for God to harden something if it was not but their own free choices. All right. Now we can start to get into the text this morning of Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. So there are answers to the question to the Jew. This has first come up in Romans chapter 9. Because the, the Jew is wondering, well, what's the advantage of being a Jew then? If Gentiles are saved the same way we are, if keeping the law doesn't merit my salvation, if being in the right genealogy, in the right Abrahamic uh, covenant, that doesn't bring me salvation, being circumcised on the eighth day, that doesn't do anything special, then, then why, what's special about even being a covenant person of God. And Paul answers that in Romans chapter 9. He says, chiefly this, to them were committed the oracles or the message of God. They had first-hand evidence, first-hand information, and to whom much is given, much is required. And so they had greater accountability and also greater judgment when they rejected truth. In chapter 9, Paul again talks about all the privileges that Israel had as a nation. So let's just look at those really quickly. They are Israelites. Pertain to them the adoption, a nation that was going to be their own special treasure. They had the glory. I just finished reading the anointing of Aaron this week in the Old Testament. 
And when he went into the temple, the whole nation saw the glory of God. In fact, wherever that tabernacle went, the glory of God appeared over it and guided them through And that was given to the nation of Israel. They were a beacon to every other country. This is Yahweh. This is the God of the whole earth. This is God who creates everything. And here's his glory. And they were to partake and to watch that. To them was given the covenants. The Abrahamic covenant. This land is yours. You will be a blessing. The Davidic covenant was theirs. That there will be a king. This morning I got up and I read... I mean, the Bible's so beautiful. I, I wasn't planning on sharing this as an illustration, but I got up this morning and I read about God, Gabriel, coming down to Mary and says, to you, Mary, God is going to keep his covenant promise that he's going to raise up a king from the family of David. I, I mean, this Bible, it's an incredible book. I hope you get excited about it. I hope you love it. I hope you read it. I hope you memorize it because it's just amazing. It all fits together. So when... Israel was unfaithful and unbelieving. What did Paul say? He says, God still is going to fulfill what he said. Let God be true and every man a liar. So as we get down here, we see a man with a broken heart. And this is really convicting. Can you imagine saying that you wish you were cursed, spend an eternity separated from God so that other people could go to heaven. I don't know how anybody could get to that place. I really, I, I don't. I, I, have, I have two children that are out of the will of the Lord, and I don't know their salvation. And I would do anything. I mean, physically, I, I would more than readily give up anything I had. Anything. I mean, I'm, you know, you, know you're, you can relate to me. I know some of you have children the same way. And that's the most important thing in your life. I remember telling one of my boys, I said, I don't care what you do with your life. I, could, I, I don't care if you're a bin man. As long as you love Jesus. And, and later on, he, he told his mom, he said, I can't believe Dad put that kind of pressure on me to have to be a Christian. And he said, no, t- son, that's how much your dad loves you. Your dad was trying to tell you he could care less what kind of career you have. Dad could care less how much money you make. God could care less if you're popular. God cares and Pat cares. Your dad cares for your soul. And we don't have that kind of passion for lost people. Tracy and I live a block away from the Ogden Art Center. And I see the gay flags out in front of that art building every day. And it grinds me. But would to God that it would break me. That I would weep. And I'd have a sense of brokenness. That I would love those whom God loves. Paul, at this point, is so much like his Savior. When Jesus said this, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, because then, then you will be called the children of the highest.
Because that's what our God does for the wicked every single day. And these people were Paul's enemies. These were the ones that were beating Paul. These were the ones that were going to imprison Paul. These Jewish people who had rejected the Messiah. And his heart and his brokenness for them is that they might be saved even to the point that he was willing to give up his own salvation. So I ask us this morning, do we have the heart of an evangelist? Are we broken? And you can see the genuineness of Paul. This is how emphatic he was. He gives a triple oath in verse 1. I tell the truth. That's his first oath. And I tell the truth in Christ. Then he gives the negative side. I am not lying. And then he gives the proof. My conscience also bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Paul had known what it meant to be like Christ. Christ likes sorrow. Jesus exemplified this, I think, best when he saw the multitudes in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus saw them scattered and having no shepherd. And he was moved with compassion. And he said, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, because the harvest truly is plenteous but the labors are few. When you start to meditate on this kind of passage of Scripture, it needs to change your behavior. It needs to change the way you think. Yesterday I was getting into the car, and I was getting ready to drive back, and I was in a hurry. <laughs> you know, I, I knew I had a, a 10-hour drive ahead of me. And a young man came up and started talking to me. He says, is that your dog in the back of this car? I said, I really don't have time to talk to you. That's not my dog. It's somebody else's dog. <laughs> oh, he's got beautiful eyes. So he, the dog jumps out of the car then and runs over to him. He's petting him. I said, get the dog back in the car. We've got to go. We've got to go. And I got under conviction. How important was this young man's soul? So I went over to my book bag, and I took out a track. I told him, I said, I'm a Christian. I want you to read this. Jesus Christ died for you on the cross. And he looked at me. He says, do I look like I'm deranged? Do I look like I'm some kind of evil person? Do I need something? Is there something wrong with me? And I just said, no. I said, there's something wrong with all of us. I says, we are sick with sin. And I says, and there's a doctor, and there's only one doctor, and his name is Jesus. And he looked at it. He says, I, I'm, I'll take that. And I flipped it over in the back, and I says, there's my phone number. I says, if you read this and you have any questions, I said, give me a call. But we, we can't come to the Bible and not let it affect us. I've been so under conviction about my own lackadaisical and my empathetic witnessing efforts. And, I, and there's so much more that we can do, but it won't happen until we get a sorrow, a brokenness, a real vision of where people are going to spend eternity. Christ likes sorrow. Christ is our ultimate example. He gave himself a ransom for many. The context shows also that God is patient and long-suffering. 
How many people have we witnessed to that we've sort of given up on? How many children have we prayed for that we don't pray passionately for any longer? That's not a picture of our God. This is what it says in Romans 9.22. And under the context that I'm talking about, shift your mind if you've never thought about Romans 9 in this context. That why is Israel blinded and why are they hardened? And Paul says this, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? That was you and I. We were children of disobedience, and by nature, we were children of God's wrath. That's Ephesians chapter 2. That's every one of us. And God was willing to show his long suffering. And I think this verse is referring to Israel. God was patient, enduring with them. He stretched out his hand all day long to a gainsaying and rebellious people. We need to be long-suffering as Paul was, as God is. This is what he said in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. 10.21. To Israel, he says, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. Romans 11.11 says this. Then hath God cast away his people whom he foreknew. God forbid. So what is the application? Being Christ-like. That's what a Christian is. Christ-like. It means having a burden for the lost. Jesus came to seek. Jesus came to save. We are image bearers of God. We are to be spreading the kingdom of redemption. God was in Christ, redeeming the world, not imputing their trespasses, and he's committed to us. God has no other plan. The ministry of reconciliation. A third application. When we love those who oppose us and oppose the gospel, then we are most like Christ. We are to be instruments of grace. We are to be long-suffering from the law, for the lost. Well, I know I've gone over time again, so I'm going to stop there. But I pray this morning that we will take some inventory on our lives We'll look at our passion for the lost. We will look at our prayer list. So many of our prayers on Wednesday night are for people that are unredeemed, that are lost and without Christ. May that be our priority. Sicknesses, they abound everywhere. But our light afflictions, they're but for a moment. We read that this morning in Sunday school. Peter said this, our trials and our physical tribulations are only now, for a season, if need be, so that the trying of our faith, being much more precious than gold, might be fined a praise and honor and glory of the appearing of Jesus Christ. We need to see people the way Christ saw people, in desperate need for a Savior. Let's close. Father, we thank you for this incredible example of a man who was shipwrecked, who fasted, who hungered, who was beaten three times, 39 times, three times with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, a night and day in the deep, went through it all and did whatever he could so that by all means 
he might save some. God, may it start in our prayer life. May it trickle down into our actions and our thoughts. And God, may we see fruit that remains. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name.